Hey, wonderfuls. Welcome to episode 352 of the JV Club with my wonderful guest, Alice Fraser. Uh, I am very, very pleased that we were able to record with one another from across the world. I really dragged that out. I want to uh, acknowledge my uh, wonderful friend and listener, Joseph, who suggested, was the very first person to suggest that Alice and I would get along. And um, it comes as no surprise to anyone that that is absolutely the case. Uh, I also want to just remind everyone that it is your last opportunity to sign up for the JV Gift Club 2019. Just as a final reminder to participate in the JV Gift Club Book Exchange, and we have a ton of people doing it already. I am so excited. I can't wait to hear what everyone sends everyone else. Uh, If you want to participate, just send an email to Chris, C-H-R-I-S, at Chris at ChristopherRoyce.com. That's Christopher, as you would normally spell it. Last name Royce, R-O-Y-C-E. One word, Chris at ChristopherRoyce.com by Friday. That's this Friday, December 6th, with your name and a mailing address. Boy, I really had to swallow. There was like so much information in that last sentence. I suddenly felt like I needed to swallow. Uh, You're going to pick up a copy. Could be new, could be used of one of your favorite books. Um, If you go to a place and they're cheap and you find five different ones that are a dollar each, feel free to uh, overwhelm your new pen pal friend with uh, more than one or just one or that's it. I don't have anything else. Um, and then you, uh, so one of your favorite books when you were a teen, and then just make sure you calculate shipping costs when you shop, which usually costs a few bucks to send something. Uh, and then on Sunday, December 8th, this Sunday, you will receive a name and address to send your book to. So can't wait. As I have said, I always participate in this and I'm very excited to do so again this year. All right. Hope everyone's doing well and, uh, enjoy the episode. podcast or my podcast i think we're doing my podcast okay (laughs) um that's a that's an adorable 2019 question um (laughs) the no the notion that no one's sure which podcast is is being done is is kind of amazing yeah also the devastating feeling in the middle of an interesting conversation that you should be podcasting it oh Nothing makes you feel like more more like a piece of shit when you're like, this would make great content the just because you're connecting with someone. <laughs> just the worst. What is that? I mean, do you, because that, I don't think of my, like, first of all, for us to both be able to say nothing makes you feel more shit than that is, I think, a testament to us not being <laughs> shit. But, but like, what, what is that? Do you know what I mean? I mean, really, wh- why do, why? We just get so much pleasure from it that now it feels like something you want to sort of live on past the conversation itself. Yeah, something like uh, I occasionally do a um, thing in in the UK, which is called Stand Up and Slam, which is stand-up comedians versus poets. And the joke struck me that often when the poetry is successful, they use, you know, in front of an audience, it's often funny. Mm. And so I think, you know, poetry is so when it's good enough to be comedy or comedy when it's so brilliant that it's almost poetry. There is something like that in terms of like if your podcast is interesting and good enough, it feels like a very natural conversation. 
And if your conversation is good enough, then it feels like it should be a podcast. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I really quickly need to just dwell on the idea of, yeah, this, the stand up and slam that those do seem like two things that would not draw the same audience. So I'm, I like, I wonder if that would be, tr if that's something, if something like that exists in the States and if well, so, I, I think how it's, it, you know. it's great because it doesn't draw the same audience. So mm. you tend to get a poetry audience rather than a comedy audience. And I quite like that. Do you, what, what about that? Do you like, do you feel like they listen differently or they listen very differently? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a different vibe and, and you're winning them over to a certain extent. Often people who are very into poetry might look down on comedy. Sure. And vice as versa. A kind of a lesser art form. Um, and I, I like, I like that challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if, I wonder if poets feel the same way about stand up. I mean, do you, because that's, you know, the same can be said on the other way. There could be certainly people who, who have a, a deep appreciation of poetry and who feel like they also love stand-up. But I think at least in the kind of alt comedy scene, there's just, there's a lot of snarkiness, right? So there's a lot of kind of, oh, those are authentic feelings or those are words being used to express something uh, genuine and vulnerable, um, which is <laughs> ironic because the best stand-up <laughs> kind of is that, right? But but somehow when you put well, it think so. under a different title, like the guys become safer somehow to, to still sort of be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But still no one can access my true feelings. Because it's all jokes, you have that, that barrier of disclaimerness. But I think it also works in the other way with poetry of, of the kind of veil of art or, you know, this isn't utter self-indulgence because it's art. I wanted to be a poet. I, write, I wrote poetry when I was younger and my mum was an incredible poet. But I went to poetry readings at university um, and I was like, these, no, I don't want to be anything like any of these people. <laughs> and then oh, no. the comedy community, sure, it's still also full of degenerates, but at least they're not wanker degenerates. <laughs> like at least they're not up themselves. <laughs> That's such a terrible way to pick an art form. But <laughs> uh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, there's something in general. I think there's something like. Do, do you feel like we live in an age where? like being a part of the arts that there's that there's you know even just within the way arts express themselves and how sort of the word meta has become ubiquitous um that that there that the way we approach being artists in in this reality in this time in this western culture is like has to have a sort of like potentially like a little bit of a shrug or like you have to be a little bit of a wanker like it, 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 in the old days was it like this were, were people like ugh, you know arch smart or was or was it or were the distinctions between classes or you know sort of um jobs metiers and and you know being the poet who has a benefactor like i wonder i wonder if there was a sense of self-awareness the where the way there is now do you know what i mean yeah, I don't I don't know. I do think that now we have both like immense privileges and awareness of these kind of the breadth of of society, like awareness of our own privilege as artists. Um and it makes us feel like art is a luxury. Yeah. And this is something I come back to like repeatedly, which is 
um, particularly in the way that governments do arts funding, for example, uh, they treat it like it's a last on, first off kind oh, of sure. thing. It's the last thing you fund and it's the first thing you cut uh, when you're in trouble. And then I think about the fact that my granny was a, uh, in the Holocaust and, you know, hiding in a basement with her friends for, you know, to hide from the Nazis. They'd go out when the bombs were falling because it was safer for them to be outside mm. um, when the bombs were falling than it was for them to be outside when the bombs weren't falling. Yeah. Um, and they used to put on little plays for each other and do shadow puppetry on the walls. And it is the, I think it's one of the last things to go, actually, art this need to kind of entertain ourselves and each other and connect with each other and distract ourselves from the truth or engage with the truth in a way that is um, moderated enough that it's comprehensible and not just a primal scream. <laughs> Absolutely. I, 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 and I will say it, it takes a lot of cojones um, to uh, – to to disregard i mean listen and i don't i really don't mean i'm i'm doing the absolute opposite of belittling this yet somehow what i'm about to say probably sounds still like i'm belittling it but you really <laughs> provided the mother of all defenses <laughs> for to, to, to in support of the arts like it's very hard to it would be i i just am hard pressed to imagine the person and i they absolutely exist i mean the holocaust <laughs> happened so there you go uh but but just you know to sort of go oh yeah the holocaust like mm, trying to entertain yourself in the midst of like complete horror and still needing like love and imagination and 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 light in some way or, or the depiction of the the horrible way you feel and getting it out of you and that being this expression of art as well um when you put it like that it's very hard to say, you know, oh, I don't know if it matters. <laughs> yeah, and it I think it clearly does. And part of what matters about it is that it is outside of everyday life. I, I, I sort of talk about this in my stand-up a little bit in my show, um, Savage, which is, is art or is comedy particularly of all the art forms? Is it for turning your eyes away from hard things? Is it giving you a moment of like relief looking you, complete triviality being important to take you away from the horrors or is it a way of kind of wading through the horrors and giving you some sort of I don't know armor or protective equipment or context or framework or structure of ideas that help you get through it I don't know the answer I think it might be both for different people in different times thank god I haven't had to choose because I feel that both have saved me at one point or another how did you get into comedy Oh, I just completely backwards just couldn't have. I mean, I had to be cajoled and coaxed by friends of mine in the theater department at, at San Francisco State University. Um, just couldn't. I mean, I really uh, I think the listeners of my podcast know I think I um, uh, I think it was one of those things where I, I, I really loved acting and I, I liked studying acting and I liked also being the funny kid in the room. Um, but certainly the the idea of being tasked with doing that and in a way that was consistent and provable on some level was wildly intimidating to me, you know, so I really, I really, I just, I just, I couldn't have stubbornly resisted it more, um, considering <laughs> the opportunities until, you know, my, my mid 20s, I think, and then, um, and then I, I just sort of, I really just backed into it. I truly did. I was just kicking and screaming. What about you? I uh, loved comedy growing up, sort of the Monty Python and the Goon Show and that kind of British yeah. 
um, radio style comedy, the silly, clever comedy. I loved it. Absolutely. But Me I was, too, as a fan, but couldn't cross over. I, I was very bad at it the first time I tried it. <laughs> I tried it at university improv, um, and I, I still remember the just full body prickling heat shame of how bad I was. And it was this odd thing of feeling like, you know, there were things that I was good at and I was told that I was talented at and there were things that I was bad at and I just wouldn't do them. You know, lazy but talented, that was me. And I sort of thought, I know I'm bad at this. I wonder if I can get good at it and, and sort of if I can learn to learn in that way. Like I was sort of worried that I'd never be able to work hard at anything if it didn't come naturally to me. And so then I got addicted to that process of knowing I was bad, getting better, and then everything you get, every laugh you get, every show you sell out, every happy audience member, every reward from the industry, you know exactly what you did to earn it. And mm -hmm. it is so much more satisfying than this sort of ephemeral idea of, oh, you're talented. And, of course, the things that I do have talent at, and I'm going to talk about that sentence in a second, the things that I do have talent <laughs> at feed into my comedy, like I'm interested in stuff and I'm quite intense, you might have noticed. Uh, but <laughs> but um, and they feed into my comedy, but just the process of making people laugh is such an interesting problem for me Then it is infinitely difficult and infinitely engaging and you can keep getting better at it and keep getting more skills and I the the sentence that I wanted to like flag back there was <laughs> saying that you're good at anything is completely unacceptable in Australia and I'm only doing it because you're in America <laughs> <laughs> there's somehow we've escaped quite as much self-effacing yeah, I don't know what it was, whether it was you rejected it with the British Empire or what. But <laughs> I think there's still a, a tremendous amount of apologizing and a tremendous amount of of uh, modesty, be it false or otherwise. But I think that was some. But you you say that, but that was something that that's still something I struggle with in certain circumstances, and it absolutely was something I struggled with my my entire youth. I mean, I definitely was. I I absolutely came up in in the the age of or the or the culture of you know if someone says you're good at something you have to go ugh no I'm awful oh no please don't you you are you are or you know and whether or well, not because it's also because it's terrifying to be told yeah. that you're talented at something what does that mean does that mean you have to do it and if you're not successful then you're a failure as a human being like what it's, yeah. it's so crippling yeah ugh. Gross. But I know I, it's funny because I, I, I think I've told you that, you know, I've had a handful of people say, oh, you have to podcast Alice like you guys, you know, you just you just would understand one another. And um, I have <laughs> just so recently, like in the last, I think, two episodes of my podcast, um, spent a spent a fair amount of time. And it's this it's a sort of sing song theme for me, too, of this idea of being of how awful it is in a very privileged way to be kind of okay or good at things uh, naturally uh, so that everything that that wasn't true for me had to belong to someone else. Like if it, if I was not naturally good at it, I couldn't have shut it out faster and I couldn't have dismissed it as like, that belongs to other people who, who are good at it. Um, yeah. 
and and a just fascinating yeah. book for that. Can I recommend a book? Oh, please. Uh, is Stephen Fry's The Ode Less Travelled. And yes. that's about poetry. And it's basically a textbook on how to do poetry if you're not a poet. This idea that we have that if you're if you're writing poetry, it has to be Keats or Shakespeare or Shelley or, you know, that this idea that someone can pick up a guitar and play at a party and they're not the best guitar player but it's nice and everyone enjoys yeah. it and you get pleasure out of it and they get pleasure from playing and people get pleasure from listening or singing along. I mean, not at all parties, not all guitars, hashtag. But <laughs> um, the idea that, it, you know, if somebody picks up a pen to write a sonnet, all of a sudden you're like, Ugh, you know, you're shit. Why would you even do that? How, how could you even pretend to be good enough to allow yourself to write a fucking couplet? This yeah. idea is ridiculous. People can paint for pleasure, people can play an instrument for pleasure, but for some reason indulging in words for pleasure is seen as wanky or foolish or that you must think really highly of yourself rather than just mm. in enjoying it. Yeah, that's true. There is a lack of playfulness with words that, that doesn't seem to have crossed over to many other sort of arts and crafts, I say, as a more, you know, as a sort of more... Um, amateur and and in and I mean that in the nicest way but you know being being sort of a dilettante at something like that arts and that, that's sort of what I love about an arts and crafts fair it's like as soon as you attach crafts to arts suddenly it becomes yes. very like homespun and very folksy <laughs> and you 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 suddenly go from like you know, suddenly you're like, you know what? There probably will be a few wooden geese in bonnets. Like, yeah, that's, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I'd like to see some quilts, you know, that there's some kind of there's some kind of permission that's that's given uh, with the level of sophistication expected with 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 various forms of of the arts. And, you know, what's funny is that as you were talking about Stephen Fry's book, of course, I had to have like the most Hollywood uh, comparison in my head, which was like, yeah, well, save the cat, you know, is this like mm. very commercial book that tells you you don't have to create this thing that's never been seen before. And so, you know, as much as it is um, about taking something beautiful and turning it into like what can be a blockbuster movie, um, and, and, and that's not that's not lost on me. But it's the same principle, right? It's the same idea of needing to be told by someone else please don't do a thing like please don't stop for yourself from doing a thing because you're afraid that it that it's that, that, that it comes from somewhere that it's that you were inspired by something that you know that you're copying that you're plagiarizing or or that you're just going to bore everyone because these stories that we want to be told time and time again you know the ones that uh, are the most lasting and the ones that uh, touch the most people tend to be these sort of tropes you know and that that's okay you just find a way to tell your version of something uh in a unique way or in a way that's pleasing to people right yeah and that that there is also something in the in the effort or in the time stamp of it doing something imperfectly that is is i quite I, you know how you sometimes see these kind of memes going around of someone who's done a drawing and it's a shitty drawing looks yeah. goofy or or mental in some way I love those and I don't yeah. love them in like an ironic way. I think they are, you know, you see the effort and you see the love and you see the intention and you see the lack of skill. Uh, the lack of skill combined with the effort is something like truly beautiful. Mm. You th I think you just described Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space also. I don't know why I can't get away from movies, but but that's a, but, but that is <laughs> well, another example of 
I know it's really it's it's just kind of ingrained but but no that's the same thing it's this you know these these things that be that are treasured like that's just something I do a, a live staged reading of and and on a fair you know, like sort of a couple of times a year um, that Dana Gould has kind of written he feels the same way uh, that it's just this extraordinary beautiful wonderful weird bad thing um, that is coming from such a wonderful place of this passion for filmmaking. And I think, you know, there are things that you can watch. Like, I've never seen The Room, but that's, you know, an example of of something where people say it's so, it's so terrible, it's kind of good. But I don't feel like there's, I don't know that there's affection there. It feels like there's some degrees removed from what makes it lovable, whereas a great bad movie or a great bad book or a great bad painting, to your point, you still feel like it's infused with something genuine and something real. And what could be more lovely than that expression by a human being, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, there's a comedy room in England uh, and they do it in, in the Edinburgh Fringe and in London called the ACMS, the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society. And you go up and you do something and they're not interested in seeing you do something good. They're interested in you trying something or doing something that never works. Or uh, And the, at the end of every performance, um, the hosts come on and they say, uh, a failure. And the audience says, a noble failure. Oh, that's great. And like it's cheesy and everything, but that is, it's truly beautiful. You know, yeah. people get up and they do just the weirdest stuff you know, uh, I saw uh, Tim Fitzhigham do a sh- his whole set in semaphore because he knows semaphore for some reason <laughs> wow. with the flags. It's wow. not funny. It doesn't work. But right. it's amazing. It's amazing yeah. to see someone try something like that. Absolutely. You know, I love it so much. Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. We interrupt the podcast you're listening to to tell you about another podcast. That's right. We got this with Mark and Hal. That's correct, Mark. This is Hal. We do the hard work for you, settling all of the meaningless arguments you have with your friends. So tune in every week on the Maximum Fun Network for We Got This with Mark and Hal. And all your questions will be asked and answered. You're welcome. All right. That's enough of that. We got this. And so you you said that you came into the comedy side of things um, in in college. What were you like uh, as an adolescent? What were your sort of middle school, high school years like? Uh, I was, so we have sort of two schools. We have primary school and then we have high school. So primary Mm. school goes up to about the age of 11 and then uh, high school goes up until the age of uh, 16, 17. And uh, in primary school, I went to, I had a nice time. I was there with my twin brother and, you know, we kind of formed a little gang against the world, uh, he and I and a girl called Annie Jolliffe who played the drums and a boy called uh, Mike who was a bit, you know, a bit fey and a bit of fet. And so we were sort of outside the boys' group and the girls' group. Hmm. And then I went to high school and was very badly bullied and very much an outsider and too proud to kind of try and crawl my way back in. It was an all-girls school, so sort of that toxicity um, was not 
something that I could negotiate very well. I used to skip out of class and go and read in the library or skip out of school entirely and, and go to a local bookshop and I just buried myself in bad fantasy novels and sci-fi. <laughs> um, and then I, I got to university and kind of really hit my stride, I think. Uh, I felt like it was an amazing thing. I've, I've told this story before um, on my own podcast, but it was in first year university. I went to some party at the university bar and uh, people were talking and I was sort of there on the fringes of things and the party officially ended and a guy called Andrew Garrick said, uh, hey, we're going to a drink for a drink. Do you want to come along? And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm just heading home. And he said, no, you seem like an interesting person. And I just thought, oh, my God, they don't know. Mm. <laughs> I could be anyone. I could be anything, yeah. They don't know that I'm completely unlikable and horrible and all of that. And it genuinely, that one thing mm. changed the course of my life and my whole idea of myself. Um, so I will always be grateful to Andrew Garrick for... I have no idea why, whether he was being nice or whether he did think I was an interesting person or what, but uh, for that, I will forever be grateful. It's, it is really amazing when people have those, those actual sort of watermark moments or those, you know, those landmarks where, they, where you can actually say this precise moment. I mean, I have a couple of kind of, you know, like sort of phases that I you know even even if even if short-lived that I can kind of point to and say wow I really think that changed the course of things but I I, I don't know that I have a, an Andrew Garrick moment I don't know that I have that that sort of the world cracks open and and it's a, and it's you know suddenly a different color or whatever that's that's pretty extraordinary when yeah. that, when so, when you have a moment like that do you think that for, for for people who do, do you think that they spend more time, not to say that you just sit navel-gazing, but do you spend more time kind of contemplating what would have happened if not? I don't know. I think, yeah, I don't know. I know there are choices that I've made in my life that were the wrong choice. And I'm very... Um, very easily paralyzed by choice. I'm about to go back to London from Sydney, where I am now. I spent a month here, and I'm going back for three months, maybe four. Uh, and then I'll be back here for the festivals, and then I'll be going back there. And But any time I leave any either of those countries or any country for any extended period of time, I have a week of just being filled with utter dread hmm. that it, that there's a there's an alternate timeline version of myself that I am murdering <laughs> by mm -hmm. virtue of getting on a plane mm -hmm. and it's not a good quality in myself and it 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 leans me towards inaction rather than action which is probably to do with you know my childhood and all that but uh, yeah I'm very easily frozen or crippled by choice yeah I relate to that I mean I definitely think I again Boy, this is just so to be to have to constantly refer to past episodes of our our mutual podcast or uh, experience. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I think there are there are um, times in my life where I was just uncomfortably aware that a choice had to be made for me um, because there was a there, because otherwise I just I just wouldn't have. 
I wouldn't have changed something that absolutely, you know, that just needed to be changed. Um, but I think it's interesting that you continue to make that choice, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, that's not my best quality, but at the end of the day, you you are doing it. You're not, you know what I mean? You that's a most people would say, "Oh, I don't know how I could do that. I don't even know how I could bop back and forth between two wildly different countries, you know, at the end of the day and and be across the the world and that's a huge leap to become familiar with or comfortable with on any level whether it you know whether you have like some some feelings about that that are complicated um boy you're still making that choice every time that's huge yes and no like i've got i've got gigs booked in so i have to be there so the choice is out of my hands in that Mm, way i yeah it feels like that yeah but you know again (laughs) you've (laughs) i i know this so well you've still engineered your life you know, you could simply yeah. say, like, no, 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 I just work here now. Whatever that, whatever that's going to mean, I just work here, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a trolley problem sort of thing. It's a psychological thing as much as it is anything else. Like, I don't want to press the button, but if someone else asks me to press the button, I'll do it. You <laughs> like, will kill those other people or the kid on the tracks or whatever that, that problem is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they do that with drone pilots, you know? They had them selecting targets and firing and they got really bad sort of psychological issues but now they have a robot voice tell them when to fire and then they don't get as much damage I mean they obviously get incredibly damaged it's a terrible thing to do um to spend your nine to five shooting people um and then go home to your family yeah like it's uh, worse I imagine in some ways than being in a war zone because you're switching modalities so quickly yeah Um, but uh, yeah, I I don't know. I I think it's be, I don't know. I had this insight today, so it seems more interesting to me than it probably is. But my mum was. You haven't let it I get was, stale yet. Yeah, exactly. I haven't realised how boring <laughs> it is <laughs> as an insight. Um, but my mum was sick when I was growing up, and so if we were loud or disruptive, or did things that we wanted to do that caused difficulty, um, she would have health effects consequences from that whereas if you didn't do anything if you just sneaked off and did your thing quietly and didn't disturb anybody then if she got sicker it wasn't your fault sure I think I I I think that might be deeply wired into my into my psyche god and explain why I'm very bad at quitting jobs or breaking up with people yeah no that's that's huge I mean that's that's sort of should be in a textbook if it's not, but that the idea of feeling, because, you know, we, we all sort of, I think most of us uh, understand because it's just part of the zeitgeist still that, that, that feeling like we cause things uh, in our parents' behavior is just one of the biggies. It's one of the biggies, you know? So that, that's, that's huge. Um, But having a twin brother, uh, and and I won't dwell on this too much, because I know that twins are fascinating to people who aren't twins. And it's probably extremely tiresome to anyone who is a twin. Um, But it's but first of all, in my life, certainly much rarer uh, fraternal twins of different sexes, right? That's I don't know if that's rarer, but incidentally, if not, it's that's I've I trying to think of any twins I've known who weren't identical. To be honest with you, I think I've only <laughs> I've only drawn identical twins to my life. Um, yeah. But I think that's 
but obviously that's a different I think that that must be a different everybody has a different you know a different relationship uh, regardless of whether you're an identical twin or fraternal but, but I think that that closeness did you sort of have each other as a sounding board to at least express whatever version of that feeling you had you know what I mean like yes you don't have the 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 presence of mind now to go oh you know at the time you weren't like oh wait a minute I think I see what's happening when you know when my mom's sick it's my fault therefore I will xyz that there are probably a lot of ways that that's happening that you're not identifying but but would could you talk about that with your brother at the time a little bit in some child child way Oh, that's interesting. No, I don't think we ever did talk about it because mum was sick from when we were born. So it was kind Mm. of just the game. It was the life. It wasn't something that we thought about or talked about as though it were, you know, anything unusual. It was just, it was just life. But we did, I mean, we, we brought each other up. We looked after each other. My brother is probably one of, oh, he's probably the best man I know. Um, and it wasn't until we were a lot older that we started talking about it. Um, and even so, you know, he doesn't particularly like me doing uh, comedy that mentions it. Mm. Because in part, uh, I wrote a poem about it, but it, 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 our family is very careful of each other's feelings and maybe too careful because Things were so hard at various times that, you know, we didn't have a teenage rebellion. I, when my mom died, I realized that I had never said anything cruel to her. I certainly couldn't remember ever having said anything cruel to her because we knew she was dying Mm. our whole lives, you know. Mm. So that's a, that's a, we, we are very delicate with each other, um, and I think that can lead to problems sort of percolating away in the underground that may have to be dealt with later. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my brother is is great. He thinks about things very deeply and he's very, um, he's very like Hamlet. He's doing it. He's just, he's um, the primary carer for his uh, now one-year-old daughter and he's just started talking about it. And I'm so happy because he's a very private guy. I'm so happy to see him kind of branching into my world a little bit into he's got a, a YouTube channel and podcast called the the man mum podcast <laughs> where he's kind of just talking about all these interesting things like the physical setup of men uh, who have primary care responsibilities like it fucks their backs mm-hmm. because they're not built to carry a baby for 12 hours a day in this really like this is something that you don't really think about well, and worse, I feel like you have the sort of the masculine mystique fitting into it, right? Where it's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I can't talk about this. I'm a man. I, the last thing I can acknowledge is that I can carry less weight than a woman. Yeah, yeah, that this hurts me more than it would, even though I'm physically stronger. I, you know, I don't have a hip. I don't have a hip. I can't put a baby on a hip. So right. my, my neck's really sore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, that sort of stands out is I'm an only child, right? So if I choose to tell my story, there are fewer people whose story I'm also telling incidentally, you know? Yes. Um, and so I, it, so for me, it is hard to imagine having a, a, a sibling, much less a sibling the same age to, to where, you know, obviously you're having your own unique individual experience, particularly when we get to talking, you know, about your high school experience where day in and day out, you were surrounded by girls and, and, and he wasn't there and you weren't having that experience together. But, 
yeah, like sort of drawing the light, like, mm, at what point, like, if you're careful about his feelings, what kind of conversations do you have, if any, about at the beginning of your of, of doing comedy? Like, oh, by the way, I'm probably going to be telling a lot of stories about um, our life. Yeah, I hope you're okay well, I with don't it. talk about him on stage. He's specifically asked me not to talk yeah. about him on stage, and particularly with Savage, uh, which my dad could see as a work of art and enjoy as a work of art. You know, he said that's a very good piece of art and he understood that it wasn't me trying to tell the whole story. I was trying to make a specific point. But I think for Henry it was very difficult because my story was so closely aligned with his that me editing things out or choosing what I, as I did, a very razor-thin slice of the experience. Mm. The challenge for me artistically was to tell as little as possible while still communicating the kind of emotional reality uh, of, of this particular situation or this one event that happened in the course of this whole life. For me, that was the interesting thing, but I think for him it felt like I was taking control of this narrative and the, the story that is told in public is the story that kind of defines the thing retrospectively right. we had that discussion which is about as close as we come to a fight mm. <laughs> a friend of mine once <laughs> said watching you fight is hilarious because you just stand and you both stare off in slightly different directions and look really disappointed that it's come to this <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is a brutal indictment of the way my family discusses things <laughs> well when you so when you were First of all, what brought about was it was it known that you were going to always go to a private girls' school for high school, or was that a decision that was made for you since you maybe didn't like to make decisions? How did that come about? Um, it was not a private girls' school, so it was what we call. Oh, I'm sorry, I totally selective. threw that in. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's I, I understand it. So in our in our school system, we have public schools, we have private schools, and we have what are called uh, we have Catholic schools. We have also what are called public selectives. Mm. So you they're government-funded. You don't pay school fees, but there's a test to get into them. Uh, right. So you have to pass a test. And I I, th I think, you know, we, we looked at the brochure and I got in and I thought it would be good and it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And I should have – I think that the mistake I made there was not going to that school – it was when in year 10 it became really evident that I was not having a good time. I was really miserable and everything was bad and mum wasn't well and all of that fed into it. But um, dad said, would you like to leave that school and go to another? And I thought that, I, that, that it would be as bad anywhere else. Um, I mm. thought it was sort of that I was the problem and that mm. uh, I was inherently unlikable. So I said, no, I'll stay. And I think that was maybe the first bad non-choice that I made in my life. Mm. <laughs> well, that's a hard, once that voice takes hold, boy, that's a powerful, that's a very powerful um, thing to have to combat. This self-created thing for the most, you know, for the most, but obviously if you have people Treating you like, 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 in what ways were you bullied? Was it overt? Was it passive? Was it, you know, being ignored? Was it all of the above? It was all of the above. I mean, girls' schools have that thing of, of in high school and in your adolescent years, people are exploring their power over other people and their place in the world and their control over things like status. 
and the ways in which girls do that, particularly in all girls' environments, are very psychological, <laughs> um, often subtle, sort of stonewalling or spreading rumours or pouring chocolate milk into your locker or um, capers into your bag or, you know, s- s- smells and, you mm. know, there wasn't punching but there was there was sort of... Humiliation. Humiliation and, and degradation and chipping away at your sense of reality. Oh, denying God. denying things that had happened or gaslighting it's true had, yeah, gaslighting it's, as, it's but as so hard on mass in groups girls in girls schools can be just utter cunts well let me tell you it's certainly true in co-ed schools co-ed public schools as well because that that was i i so relate to this feeling of just surreality of just like what is what, where have I gone that this dimension exists where everything looks the same, but these people are not my friend today? Like what, <laughs> what has happened? What has had, like, you know, it just, the sort of depersonalization of that, which kind of suggests maybe that is why I went crazy temporarily in college, but um, <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that lightly, but certainly when I started having like my own version of a panic attack it was extremely surreal but um but yeah the the feeling of uh well this here let me let me ask you this um do you feel like you have you know there are some just speaking as for women for the time being do you feel that you are somebody who is it identifies those kinds of behaviors or, or or some sort of feeling of of wariness do you feel like that's that's spread equally whether there's a ton or none across men and women for you or do you feel like because of those experiences you are more wary of women because there are some women right who have great relationships with other women and pick bad men if they're uh, straight. yes i have now very good relationships with women I have some very close uh friends and that kind of passionate female friendship that I think is so wonderful and so important and you may not know it with the same intensity if you hadn't experienced the opposite right yeah when I met in and it was in university really when I met women who I just liked me and and valued me and you just fall in love with them and you you want to hang out all the time and do things together and they see you and they understand you and you see them and you understand them and they're just so beautiful and incredible and talented and you have that real thing. I think I valued that very highly and I still have those friendships um, in my life and they shaped, I think, my self-esteem in a way that male attention hasn't done. Mm. I think that, you know, I... I'm not I have a very very good father and a very very good brother so I like men and I don't tend to um be afraid of men particularly even though I've had sort of bad experiences with scary creeps but yeah I think there is something particularly special about female friendship that we don't talk about enough maybe like the, I think particularly in the American public discourse which of course pervades Australian you know you, your cultural imperialism is very effective 
Um, <laughs> there is an idea of friendship between women that's all about like brunch and shopping and oh my god, you look amazing stuff. But just sitting down and really talking about intense feelings with someone yeah. who you feel safe with. For me, that happens, I think, with my female friends in a way that it doesn't with my male friends. That makes sense. And you're right. There is a sort of, there's a sort of superficial, like, cupcake frosting version of female friendship as depicted in, in almost God, all I popular. loathe cupcakes. I loathe <laughs> cupcakes. As the, that's the and I wasn't even giving you the metaphor. cupcake. I made you just have the frosting. So that's really the, mean. Like cupcakes as this, this idea, you know, oh, it's not, it's not, just have a fucking slice of cake. It doesn't need to be pretty. <laughs> like it doesn't need to be this like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> just hit me on a cupcake nerve. I picked the right, I'm glad that I feel I very much picked the right uh, object to then project all of that stuff onto because it feels like it, um, it 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 does a good job as as a physical representation in this moment yeah uh, if you want to have if you want to eat a piece of cake eat a piece of cake don't make it a metaphorical vagina with flowers on just <laughs> have the cake i wonder how many women who would hear that and just go i i, I really think i just like cupcakes <laughs> i think i might i think i might just like cupcakes alice um, no, they're, they're bland, they're sickly sweet on top and bland in the middle. They're <laughs> deeply upsetting. Oh, oh, it's time for a quick break. I will be back after a word from our friends at Maximum Fun. I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like, why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about butts. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager. And I was two. Butts, 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 butts. No. <laughs> So this game, this MASH game is, uh, as far as I know, quintessentially American, or at least limited to America. I could be dead wrong. Uh, if any, if you or anyone outside of the I've States not heard of it, but I do hate fun. It. So Okay, good. Well, you are going to love this because I will insist on three examples of fun uh, <laughs> for a series of categories. <laughs> so get ready to get angry. Um, so this MASH game, MASH, uh, it, it's, you would do it on a little piece of paper. In my case, I have a cute little uh, pad that a, that a listener made for me and sent to me um, many years ago. I now have to get them printed because I've become terribly spoiled. Uh, mansion, Excellent. apartment, shack, and house is what MASH stands for. That's baked okay. into the game. Um, but it is, a, it is a game about wishes and dreams and imaginings and... So I'm going to give you the categories and then you give me your sort of um, your per, your your ideal answers. And then we'll just do this little thing where in the end I will have narrowed down one per category and then I will give you your kind of alternate universe mash life. OK, so that's what we're after. So 
Because on the topic of, of cupcakes, I'm going to start with one of my perennial favorite categories, which is in this alternate universe, you can have any food that you want. There's nothing that's going to make you feel sick about it later. There's nothing that's, you know, sort of ecologically uh, improper about it. And it can also be something that you've had once, you know, or there's this perfect like, oh, you know, there's this perfect, I'm gonna say cupcake. There's this perfect cupcake at this one shop in Paris. (laughs) And I just, I've never been able to find its equal. Um, So it could be as simple as pizza, but we're creating this alternate universe where you can have whatever you want, um, food-wise, three things that uh, you would love to have in perpetuity at the snap of your fingers with zero ramifications. Uh, oh, Japanese, uh, like really good, wholesome Japanese food with like salmon, teriyaki salmon or something on those, that, that would be one. Great. Uh, mangoes in mango season. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely it's always going to be uh, mango season if you end up with mangoes at the end of this oh, mangoes like good proper Kensington pride mangoes not these weird ones that have been bred to like have a shelf life <laughs> mangoes that you can't eat without getting them up to your eyeballs that kind of mango <laughs> and it's more of a meal than it is a specific food it's a green tea at Taka Tea where Ooh which is like they, they make this incredible green tea, like the best quality, and it comes with these little um, peas, crunchy peas and red bean, mm-hmm, uh, sweet red mm-hmm. bean, and it's um, served to you by Taka, who is this old Japanese man, and he's so chill and so nice and so shy, and he just sort of potters around in the background while you drink tea and have a conversation with someone um, sort of, he sort of dusts things in the background. It <laughs> just makes it perfect. What, where is this? It's in Double Bay uh, in Sydney. And, okay. Uh, the best place in the world. Ugh. I wish I'd known about it five years ago when I was in Sydney. Um, <laughs> next time I'll take you. Okay, good. Uh, okay, next category is three books that you can jump into whenever you want. You're not reliving the plot. You're not one of the characters. You're just, it's just an opportunity to go and sink into those worlds whenever you want. And for however brief a time you want. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, Venetia by Georgette Heyer, which is a, a romance novel, but it's so much more than that. Um, the Lord Peter Whimsey series of detective novels by Dorothy L. Sayers. This sounds like something I need to get on immediately based on oh. name alone. Yeah, it's br- she's brilliant. Really, 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 really brilliant. And The Thirteen Clocks by James Thurber, okay. which is a children's book, but is one of the best books to read aloud. No but, no but accepted. I won't accept the but. I'm, <laughs> I'm happy for it to be a children's book. Um, no qualifiers necessary. Uh, okay, next question. Um, give me three, let's say in your, uh, wherever you dwell, because I know that you're back and forth a lot, but um, imagine one of, of the places that you find yourself in uh, often and within this apartment or house, there's a magical room. Um, so, you know, you go through the door and it's as big or as small as you need it to be. Uh, and, and 
and provides whatever wonderful hidden thing that you that you might want from this magical room in your house. Okay, so the house that I grew up in um, was this falling down sort of old mansion come boarding house and it was full of wild people. The front room had a bay window that looked out over Sydney Harbour and a, a big garden with a tree outside. And uh, the, the bay windows had sort of stained glass panels at the top so the light that came through them was uh, coloured um, and the tree outside was a jacaranda which is a very particular uh, colour, sort of a purple colour with very green leaves. Alice, you'll be pleased um, to then, know I'm sitting maybe six feet away from a jacaranda in my backyard. <laughs> Such an incredible colour and then there was a flame tree next to it and then you'd look out over the harbour with the the lights sparking sort of blue and gold off the water or on a grey day, this beautiful soft sort of silvery dove colour. Mm. Um, that for sitting and reading or jumping Wonderful. Out Secondly, um, some sort of attic room in a tower. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, with books around, lots of books and those um, ladders that you can go up to mm-hmm. get <laughs> books. Have you ever read um, The Velvet Room, speaking of children's books? No, I've not. There's to, a I'll there's a book called The Velvet Room by Zilpha Keatley Snyder. She was really um, kind of the the go-to authoress for me when I was younger, she would, she was just did such an amazing job of creating these little secret, wonderful places that were kind of like magic adjacent. They were all, it was Mm -hmm. a sense of magical realism, but there, but there absolutely was nothing magical about it other than just the, the wonder that a child has about a thing. She has this other book called The Egypt Game, which is about a, these kids who are very different from one another, but who end up um, creating this sort of, <laughs> this worship of ancient Egypt in this kind of crummy backyard that someone has. And they build, you know, they sort of build out this world. But The Velvet Room, I think, takes place kind of during the Dust Bowl. Um, and there's a little girl who is traveling around with her family as they look for work. And she ends up in this place where um, she's she ends up being entrusted I always think about how her little dirty bare feet are described. She's she's entrusted with this key um, to this this how this room and this mansion, and it's it's the, she calls it the velvet room, and it's just a, a sort of a, a tower that's essentially a library um, where she just mm-hmm. gets to sit and read and tuck her little dirty feet under her um, as she sits on this on the window seat. I feel like that might be about you. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly, um, I used to read in trees till I fell asleep. Well, there you and- go. I think the third thing would be a boat. The Ooh. third room would be some sort of boat. That's an exciting twist. <laughs> I like it. Okay, yeah, great. little sort of canal boats where everything folds away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay, uh, next category. This is, uh, this is um, checking off the, the standard box we have here in our MASH game of romance. So mm-hmm. in this alternate universe, it can be a character from a book. It could be a character in a movie. It could be the actor or actress who plays that person. Anyone from any period of time. So it could be, you know, Jimmy Stewart circa 1950, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And it has to be three or just the one? Three, and you'll end up with one. Okay. Oh, I mean, what you want is one of those sort of honorable 
tormented men who like desperately want you but they're too honorable to to make a move because they have some you know position of either subservience or dominance that they don't want to take advantage of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm hearing jane austen i'm hearing jane austen <laughs> you're probably jane austen or, or something along those lines or sort of like that more like maybe um slightly more purple uh, fantasy thing where they they're mm. like the general of your army and you're the princess or you know you're they've rescued you from something and they're your mentor in a some sort of battle situation and they have to look <laughs> after you but then you have to look after them and they, they the, the the tormented honorable thing i think I is love probably it. is that a kink i don't know it's it, it, <laughs> i think it's a it's certainly a relatable one if it is Okay, all I put, all I had room for on my little um, line was tormented, but we both know what that means if we come back to yeah. it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Type type two or as specific or as general as you like for this oh. other t- Type two uh, would be, let me think, um, the charming ra- So the dishonorable one who you redeem <laughs> by virtue of your great rack. i i don't feel like you've picked i mean i guess the charming rake could be funny but charming doesn't necessarily mean that you know you could laugh till milk out of your nose yeah no i don't know if if funny is the thing um (laughs) for me i i mean I've, i've i've known too many comedians perhaps well, exactly. <laughs> I could see it. I could see it being a being something that's at the top of the list, or something that is never going to make the list. Well, cert- certainly, maybe the artist, okay. like the the person who's just passionate about their art and is excellent at something, and that that kind of ineffable quality where they're just beyond you, so incredibly good at something, and you just love watching them. Wonderful. And then for some reason they like you. Uh-oh. Well. Mm-mm. The reason is that you're you. So you'll have, we'll yes. stop that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Next category. Let's do three places in the world that you would like to have a little uh, vacation home. Um, if getting there, let's assume that getting there takes no time at all. So we're sort of teleporting. Everything is equal. Three places in the world that I would like to have a, I mean, Sydney. Great. Um, on the cliffs at Diamond Bay. Out looking out over the ocean, uh, London, middle of the city, Soho, and Inlay Lake in Burma, in Myanmar now, mm-hmm. which is a city on a, on a lake. People live in these bamboo huts that poke out of the water. Mm, oh, sure. I feel I've only seen pictures, but pictures I yeah, have seen. It's pretty wild. Okay, uh, next category. Let's do three skills. Uh, that you would like to wake up with tomorrow without having had to master. Now, this is goes right into our problem of the lazy talent. But let's say you've earned it. You've earned it not to have to be perfect. Okay, great. I would like to be able to understand music. I can play music, but mainly only by ear. And that means that I don't have the, like, the, the technical, you know, how people can just write it because they know the right the maths of it. I'd like to do. Uh, ugh, I'd like to same. Have that. Same. Same. Because I think that would be super interesting, and it would give you, you know, other than just oh, it sounds great, you'd be able to figure out why. Absolutely. Well said. Um, 
I'd like to be an incredible singer with one of those just like wild voices Great. that just, and I would like to be able to dance. Wonderful. Like properly, like those where they're kind of in the air and their body is like a full circle. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 this sort of lack of gravity dancing is, uh, is very attractive to me. Um, uh, Sergei Polunin, if you, have you seen that video of him dancing? Oh, the, yes. Like yes. Yes. Wild. I just, you, you really do. You think you must have a different relationship to the earth's gravity than I do. Like there's no way that you don't. You lucky yeah, bastard. Exactly. Exactly that. <laughs> Um, okay, let's do alternate universe profession. Three professions. Let's assume, you know, I because I could talk myself out of anything. I could be like, oh, but then I'd have to blah. Um, but this is sort of the idealized version of three professions that in this alternate universe you 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 have. A, a writer, if I had the discipline, like a, mm. a novelist. Mm-hmm. A botanist. Ooh, I love it. And like helping people development strategy like i have friends who do that and i wish i had the stomach for it is that like life coaching i feel like i'm saying something very clumsy in relation to this but oh, oh no i mean, I mean more like like more like uh, you know on a national scale so a life coach for someone important i'm totally kidding um great development <laughs> strategy yeah. okay uh and then final category let's say Three uh, places and times in history it could be in s as specific as you want or as sort of general like an era or a decade or a century. Or, but three places that you're in this sort of safety bubble. So you can go and observe, but you're not going to like die of measles. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. Because you could sort of use it to, to like know the truth about a, like a historical mystery or it could just be like... You know, oh, I just wanted to see what the dinosaurs looked like. Yeah, I think they would all be sort of vaguely frontier moments. So mm -hmm. I'd like to see sort of the colonization of Australia and what that was like, what the politics of that were like. Because, you know, other than sort of taking the land from the indigenous people, you had these people who'd just been shipped out to purgatory or hell taken away completely to the other side of the world yeah. and having to build a new life. I'd like to see what the medieval period was really like, what they called the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. And then probably, like if you were definitely safe, either Sparta or the Huns, <laughs> watch that kind of real military lifestyle, see what that was like. Okay, I put down Sparta because that happens to be the first thing that you said. Um, okay, give me a number between one and seven. Seven. Okay, great. Um, certainly Julian can cut out some of this gaping hole of silence I'm about to create, but I also like to use this moment to say um, that if people would like to find more of you, where can they do so? Uh, Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser, that's F-R-A-S-E-R, or alliterative on twitter and instagram a-l-i-t-e-r-a-t-i-v-e also my um special savage is coming out on amazon prime in january oh wonderful Yee. all right i am very pleased to reveal your 100 percent guaranteed fictitious mash future or your alternate life 
happening in another dimension. You are, uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on the uh, beautiful apartment that you have in Soho. Um, What a wonderful place to just get away or work or whatever you want. Certainly as a writer, I feel that that is um, a rich environment from which to be uh, inspired. Uh, by which to be inspired, I should say, um, within the the place that you are currently, you also have, uh, and perhaps this is what inspired you to to do so much writing and have such enormous discipline. You have this uh, tower room, sort of an attic room, that is just entirely uh, populated by books and ladders, um, and little nooks and and comfy places to read. Um, Speaking of, you have the ability to jump into 13 clocks and just be in that world however much uh, you want. Whenever you like, you um, certainly have your unlimited supply of really wonderful Japanese food at your disposal whenever you need. Uh, I feel like, yeah, you may... Listen, I don't know what's going to happen when you get back from your visit to the Dark Ages. Um, so I'm, I'm, of course, it's going to inform your art, so that will be worthwhile. But you may just need to sort of, you know, just shake shake that loose a little bit because uh, from what we hear, it was a pretty intense time. I want you to rest assured that your charming rake uh, is going to stand by <laughs> gladly to spirit you off uh, for some other wild adventure Um and that is your uh, your alternate universe, Alice, life. That is a great life. You've done well. You've done well. Almost as good as my real life right now. Yeah, not quite. And certainly more ridiculous. Um, <laughs> well, Alice, I, I hope that uh, this hasn't soured you on me to the point where I don't end up doing your podcast. I would very much like to continue our conversation. So if it just ends up being at a different time uh, under different auspices, but very similar auspices, then I'm 100% on board. Let's do it next week. Okay. Uh, we will see each other in our calendars. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you so much for having me. The show is recorded by me and edited by Julian Burrell. And as always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by the amazing Say Hi. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.